In the 1990s, Serge Popovich built a youth movement in Serbia that ended up toppling Slobodan Milosevic, a brutal dictator, without firing a single shot. Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. In this episode, we dive into Serge's personal story and discuss how to scale a movement from a handful to millions, how to overcome a regime that holds all the power and weapons, why peaceful revolutions are more successful than violent ones, how street movements are like startups, and how protest movements are adapting to the coronavirus and new government emergency laws and surveillance done in the name of public health. Welcome, everyone. My name is Alex Gladstein. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer of the Human Rights Foundation. I'm honored to have Sergei Popovich, the legendary uh, protest organizer, peaceful revolutionary, uh, and you know, master of people power, on with me today to talk about the topic of protest in the age of pandemics. Serja is coming uh, to us live from Belgrade, Serbia, where he has been thinking hard about uh, the way that protest movements around the world are being challenged by an invisible enemy. And I wanted to start by asking him, uh, you know, what what he thinks about epidemics, pandemics, viruses, and the threat they play with regard to our ability to protest, because protest is such a has been such a physical thing for us. And later in the show, we're going to get into Serge's background, which is amazing and f- fascinating. But I just wanted to start with this simple idea. You know, can the art of protest survive the invisible enemy? Uh, hi, Alex, uh, and hi to all of the listeners and members to my favorite uh, HRF family. Uh, it's challenging times indeed uh, with uh, with with uh, uh, pandemic spreading and uh, I've, I've been talking to many activists across the globe because this is what my organization does we try to advise them on how to uh, to to behave in certain situations and yes you may be right there are like two uh, trends uh, that are pretty dangerous or pretty harmful or look pretty challenging for uh, global human rights and pro-democracy protesters one is obviously social distancing uh, the limitation of movement the limitation of gathering uh, which now now uh, equals in democracies and non democracy so how to organize and mobilize people in the time where every gathering is risky and actually the health risk uh, plus uh, the level of oppression can be increased under the state of emergency uh, a second is of course who want to talk about the, the things like democracy and human rights when everybody's obsessed with uh, surviving and and what we try to figure out throughout this this month and we've been talking to the people from probably uh, 20 different countries right now is how this crisis can be opportunity for movements because the social movements are so much more than just protesting. They're about the ideas, they're about the visions, they're about the organizations, they're about the mobilizing and organizing. I will I will underline the organizing thing. So looking into this, uh, we came to the to the Albert Einstein's quote that uh, in the midst of every big crisis lies a very big opportunity, and we started testing this model of uh, how pro-democracy, how human rights group can actually use this situation to boost their reputation and numbers by becoming the driving vehicle of informing people when there is a misinformation, encouraging people when there is a fear and despair, uh, getting people useful advice, opening their eyes towards the world when there is a coverage. There are so many countries like Belarus or Nicaragua where government actually denies uh, the threat from the virus. So. Uh, 
these tanks are central uh, to these type of groups. So on, on one hand, you can look at how the groups can can uh, modify their activities coming from streets, going online, but it's on tactical level. I think the more important thing is strategic level. If you become the loudest vehicle of mobilization and organization and building civic resilience and building solidarity within the situation uh, like the COVID pandemic in an autocracy, that may help you boost your reputation, get a new volunteers, start talking to the people who are not normally interested in your topics, but they will listen to you because you are community organizer. And this is this is nothing new. I mean, we've, we've seen NGOs being active in the past, in the times of crisis, uh, many, many times from, from Burma and Typhoon in 2008, where invisible NGOs became the main driver of removing corpses from remote areas and then gaining numbers that drove them through the transition all the way to Amazon forest fires last year, where the prominent groups from Bolivia and Brazil have been spearheading the protests and first-time response to the large Amazon fires. So the opportunity is there. It depends on whether you are... There's a large uh, body of work, Sergio, that uh, basically claims or tries to show that in the history of protest, uh, despite new technology, nothing can replace physical uh, coordination. And this was um, analyzed both with like voting and getting out the vote campaigns in democracies, uh, as well as uh, protests in more difficult situations. Um, we have a couple of images that we're going to show of how physical protest movements are adapting to this new environment. So the first one is uh, a pretty stunning image from Israel um, that we're going to show where you'll see that protesters against uh, the, you know, the current uh, regime and the sort of rocky uh, electoral situation in Israel have decided to come out in force with sort of social distancing uh, protests. Um, what is your, when you saw this, what was going through your mind? Uh, what was going through my mind that this is creative, but uh, to, to disappoint your first, this is nothing new. Uh, there was a certain guy called Erdem Gundus who got the Havel Prize for Creative Descent several mm-hmm. years ago, who actually invented a standing alone situation after the ban- banning of the uh, gathering of two or more people in Turkey after the Gezi protest. So yes, the protesters are adopting. Uh, these images are powerful. And they're proving that uh, there can be social distancing and the protest in the same time. Plus, I would underline the importance of what you already said online world is important, but it is the offline world, the real world where the change happens. So the virus is nothing new. There have already been governments in history that have dictated uh, rules and limitations on how many people can gather in one place is basically what you're saying. There's another uh, evolution. Absolutely. I was teasing my friends from Zim that Serbia is now actually uh, looking like Zim because gathering more of two people is considered to be the the public rally. And Uh, so you need to declare it to the police. There's another there is a law like it's called called Poza in Zim for decades now. There's another evolution with regard to um, kind of an, the idea of anonymity or pseudonymity that we're seeing. So we have an image of a recent protest in Hong Kong uh, from February, where you'll see that the uh, protesters in this image are um, uh, all wearing Kai Fox masks. So what, what is this? When you saw this, what did you what did you think about this? This sort of V for Vendetta inspired movement. 
this is good uh, in terms of branding. It looks very powerful. Uh, it's also related to the local culture. I must remind the listeners then in uh, Hong Kong, there is this eternal clash between the protesters that have a culture of wearing masks, not only for the protest, but for the pollution, and a huge uh, response from the government, which has face recognition cameras, and of course doesn't want people's faces to be covered. So this is actually using the situation where you should wear a mask in the situation where government doesn't want you to wear a mask, where this is a, a surgical mask or a, or a fun, funky pop culture image like this. So this is yet another adaptation of creativity and yet another thing to take a look at. So physical distancing, masks, there are so many ways that movements can adapt on a tactical level. So if movements can, uh, you know, might be challenged by the idea of social distancing, we've seen ways that protesters... Uh, can persevere even so. But with regard to masks, maybe masks are even a bonus. If you think about facial recognition um, and the way that governments are trying to surveil and track citizens, um, we have another image of a protest uh, that's even more recent in Hong Kong, which just shows that, uh, you know, when people head out on the street these days for public health reasons, they are wearing masks, you know, just to stay safe. So in this case, this provides them yet another bonus or yet another level of... Um, I guess, uh, armor, uh, against, uh, you know, against, against the government. I mean, have you, have you thought about the implications of this? I mean, are we looking at a world where protest in the near future, everybody will have a mask? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I don't really, I don't, I can't really foresee the future, but I see the trends of government using facial recognition and, uh, the way to defy it is uh, wearing a mask or, or using a vehicle. Uh, there are several vehicle-driven protests uh, recently, for mm. example, in Poland against the tendency of the government to use uh, the, the corona situation to pass uh, one of the most restrictive abortion laws. And these are uh, these are nothing new when you take a look at the Gene Sharp list of nonviolent struggle. You are nothing if uh, persistently optimistic, uh, which is great to hear in times like these. Uh, part of me thinks you must be going crazy uh, having to kind of... Uh, social distance yourself and not kind of be in workshops, physically training people, traveling around the world uh, to organize protesters. Um, you know, how are you dealing with personally the, 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 the isolation and, and how is how are the movements that you're in touch with around the world? How are they dealing with this? I mean, are a lot of them kind of pausing their activity or are they finding other avenues to keep the pressure on governments? Well, I must say that in the last month or so, we've been in touch with uh, probably 20 different movements uh, since uh, 2012. Canvas has, has extensive uh, program uh, done online. And we, we, we learned it by doing a Harvard online course for, for more than five years. And we can deliver our workshop online. And that was originally meant for the, for the groups that can travel uh, or, or are in risk in travel if they are meeting us. But now it's very useful because obviously nobody can travel. So through the through the online thing, we worked with 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 several groups, and this is exactly what I mentioned in the beginning. We are trying to figure out how the activism in the times of Corona means not only tactic wise but also strategy wise. If you are in an autocratic, uh, corrupt regime, there is a great chance that you will be meeting an inadequate response from the government when it comes to virus. That presents opportunity for a movement to build on civic resilience. This also comes to the theory of change, which relies on the fact that successful movements build these horizontal, horizontal bonds between the people. 
And this is exactly what you can do in the times of Corona. I'll give you several examples. If you take a look at the hashtag called uh, call, uh, viral kindness, it's something that Abaz is doing a lot. It's uh, small things that you can do for your neighbors. The people in the building organize themselves. So when I do my groceries, I do this for the elderly person. Organizing people to helping the healthcare work workers from the windows was done uh, by some of these groups. So you see the group stepping into this space of civic resilience, mobilizing against the virus, and that enables them to recruit and impact people that they can't really do and somehow overtake this narrative that, you know, you have this big government and everything is under control and the big boss on the top will appear on the TV every day right. and tell you what we are doing against the virus. No, people take things into their own hands. And this is particularly important in the time of self-isolation because what theory teaches us is that the busier the people are, the, the less they are likely to be afraid. So you have a lot of time on your hand, you're locked down, you don't go to work. So you explore the ways to make yourself useful. With regard to um, your, your, you know, your situation, uh, we need to dive uh, a little deeper. I, I really want people to understand where you're coming from. You are, at this point, someone who's seen, who's seen the proof that protests can work. A lot of people are, you know, will, will say things like, um, well, protests can never work. Uh, you know, it's just a waste of time. Um, you are living proof that that's not the case. You're living proof that the art of protest can persevere through uh, perhaps much darker times than even what people are dealing with right now. So I kind of wanted to go back to the beginning, um, to the young Sergei Popovich, uh, you know, you know, in the early 1990s. And I, I wanted to get a sense from you of what was going through this young guy's uh, mind uh, when, when he started to think with other young people about maybe toppling what was turning into a genocidal dictatorship uh, with regard to Slob Slobodan Milosevic. How could such a small group of powerless people end up changing the world? This is a story I want to get into with you. So what, tell, tell me about the very beginning. Uh, well, I was uh, I was a relatively normal Belgrade student involved in playing in the rock band and and dating, and uh, when Milosevic came in power in in uh, beginning of nineties, and together with a group of friends uh, and also the whole generation born between maybe nineteen eighty nineteen sixty nine, uh, we we started protesting relatively soon. There was just two choices in Serbia: you could fight or flee. The situation deteriorating, the economy was tumbling down, the, the isolation was coming on a, at the front gate. Uh, we were involved in five different wars over the course of a decade. We lost all five of them. Uh, people got drafted for senseless uh, nationalist wars and ethnic cleansing. They didn't like that. So a lot of people flocked and, and flee, including my own elder brother. Some of us were too stubborn to flee. So we decided to stand back and fight. Uh, so 92, I was involved in my freshman year in a, in a student's protest against the war. 96, 97, I was among the leadership of the, the student's protest after the large election fraud. And then 98, with a group of friends from previous protests, uh, I formed the organization called OTPOR, which is the Serbian word for resistance, which grew from 11 people to maybe 50,000 people over the course of two years and was fundamental in mobilizing youth and voters and parallel vote tabulation and uniting opposition behind the one presidential candidate. How do you go from three people to 50,000 
in, in, in two years uh, without digital technology, essentially? I mean, what was that like for you? Uh, you go one step at a time. And uh, if the certain experience taught us uh, something, this is the importance of numbers. And uh, very similarly now, the Canvas works with groups across the globe. And uh, it's normally the small core group of the people that uh, stands for the change, normally the movers, normally intelligent, bright, nice people, future leaders. Uh, the key is building from five or ten people into the first few hundreds. Because the movement, as we see, and there is also theory behind this, have this emerging situation in which they work on the vision and the visibility and the brand. But the most important part is how to get from this emerging phase into what we call engagement phase. When you are in several hundreds, you are, you are capable of exercising a lot of different tactics. So the crucial part of your beginning is a recruitment. And this is where the movements remind uh, very much on, the, on your world, because you're coming from San Francisco, the, the breeding basket of startups. So how do you start a startup and how do you fund a startup? It's very similar to how do you fund a movement. You have the idea, you have a few friends, you maybe have a product or two that you think will be uh, very successful. And you start by recruiting friends, family, and fools. So this is how the, you start the movement. You start looking into your own social networks. You recruit the people you know. And this is the, like the snow flank. This is where the numbers are starting growing. And slowly, 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 you build the first few hundreds. And then with the first few hundreds, you go into the exercising successful tactic. And this is where you need a little bit of planning. And this is also where you need a little bit of creativity and a little bit of luck. But then you use every single tactic as the opportunity for recruitment. So understanding this triangle, which starts with recruiting people, continues with training people, and ending up with getting people involved in activities or recruit, train, act triangle is, uh, is probably the most important lesson for aspiring emerging movement. I mean, can you give us a sense of what it was like? I mean, was it a was it a police state where there are plainclothes informants? Uh, you know, what, like was the threat of violence real? Like, give us a little bit of a sense of of the environment you were all working in and the risks that you took. Well, the Serbia at the time was not full full swing dictatorship. Uh, beginning of nineties, Milosevic was more like a crazy popular leader who is pushing country in a war and whose popularity. Uh, urban people were kind of against them, but then the people living in provinces were far more nationalistic and far more susceptible to his propaganda machinery. So uh, he probably won the first few elections, and uh, and then 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 the situation comes where where he starts losing popular support, and the more he's losing popular support, the more surveillance there was, the more propaganda against activists there was. The more violence there was, we ended up in a, in a state of emergency during NATO bombing, where the top uh, leaders of the press and the opposition were assassinated by secret police. So that was not a full-scale dictatorship when it started, but it developed into some form of relatively serious dictatorship. As your movement grew, your enemy grew. Uh, I mean, what, was there a moment when, were there many moments when you were like, this is, this is getting too risky, like this is just too much? Or was there just community commitment from the movement that no matter what happened, you guys would, would succeed? Uh, well, the, with the, with the, with the, a repression is a, is a funny thing. And uh, we kind of, when you go uh, in a fight with repressive government, you expect repression. And we have done, done a lot of preparations and thinking of it. And you need to figure out what your opponent is capable of and how do they function and how the surveillance functions and how the informants functions. 
And uh, by, by, by understanding this, that helps you to prepare. And you can, you can make uh, oppression, uh, you can make oppression backfire. And uh, we successfully done it. And by looking at it scientifically, it kind of removes this element of fear. Uh, fear is, fear is something that is embedded in, in human beings and everybody feels it except the crazy people. But it's not a question of fear. It's whether you can overcome the paralyzing and detrimental effects of fear. So getting people busy, getting people committed, getting people thrilled, building an enthusiasm somehow reduces this fear of fear. And I think this is, uh, this was the way we were dealing with it. Second way we were dealing with it because the author was considered to be cool, because the protesting was considered to be cool. There was a whole parallel culture developed in Serbia. At the time, uh, you could be the best looking, uh, rich, educated, uh, uh, best graduated kid. But you're, if you're not on the street protesting, you won't get dates. The geek <laughs> with thick glasses who runs with a megaphone will get all the, all the good dates. And, uh, uh, there was, a, there was also a culture of awarding sacrifice in the movement. So if you, the more you get arrested, the more respected you became throughout the movement. So internal culture of the movement was also encouraging people to do uh, brave things. And it ended up in a, in a situation where we actually wanted to be arrested. And this is nothing new, successful movements like uh, human rights, uh, like the civil rights movement in the U.S. that were people were surrendering to jail. They wanted to be arrested. So, you know, when you understand the nature of oppression, when you prepare people for the oppression, and if you give them the support and solidarity, if they get in trouble, the more people know about it, the more people uh, feel like they're surrounded with, uh, with the support, the less they are likely to be afraid. And another element of, of fear is this, once again, this horizontal bonds between the people that are so important also in the time of coronavirus. Uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, they, 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 they scientifically debrief soldiers when they run into the, the line of machine gun fire in war. Your life expectancy is about 20 seconds. Still soldiers are doing it. So what they did, they, they debriefed the soldiers and asked them, you know, what was in your head when you were doing this suicidal thing? Was it your country, your flag, your wife, your kids, whatsoever? The answer was, I was doing it for my body. So developing this solidarity and these bonds, these horizontal uh, relations between the members of the movement actually uh, makes you braver. And that comes from our monkey, monkey origin and the fact that we are the animals that live in packs. And building groups, building the group cultures, building the movement identity, somehow uh, somehow prevents you from being afraid of the things that that surround you building horizontal ties is something we'll, we'll come back to i mean it's so essential uh, the most repressive governments seek to, to cut all horizontal ties if you look at north korea for example the only tie you have is vertical you to the dear leader and and every the, the regime seeks to cut all the other ones so especially in times like this we need to focus on building those horizontal ties and there's there's different ways we can do that but i wanted to look at I mean, you, you've written a book, which we'll revisit a little later, called uh, Blueprint for Revolution, which is magnificent. And it goes into all the different creative, funny tactics that range from uh, satire to uh, stunts that, that you and other protesters have employed around the world to great effect. I wanted to think about one creative tactic and just zoom in, you know, in your time uh, in Serbia, and that is the fist. So I wanted you to tell the story of the fist and how it came about and how the fist actually allowed you to appear bigger than you were 
Yeah, the fist, uh, the clenched fist, was the symbol of the of the Serbian movement, and obviously it was not very original. Uh, many of the of the predominantly lefty movements used it for the history. Uh, the Serbian one came with, uh, from from the idea that in the times of despair and and uh, and lack of horizontal ties, it started with a sentence uh, that that said, "If only people who are against Milosevic can recognize each other and salute each other with a fist." Mm-hmm. So it was. Originally a gesture, not a symbol. And that gesture also was appealing to another element or problem that the Serbia as a society has, which was the atomization. Uh, you're right, Alex. Uh, the autocratic government tend to cut horizontal ties between the people. So original idea was getting the people together in order to live the resistance. So that was also like, you know, like the fingers in the fist. And uh, then the next thing was like, uh, Referring to the tactics, uh, one of our early members was uh, was a graphic designer, a friend of mine from elementary school, Nenad Petrovic Duda, and uh, he cut the cardboard blueprint for spray painting the fist. The reason why we were referring to the graffiti was that the graffiti enables you to appear stronger than you are. Right. So if you have enough of the of the street smart kids that can outrun the police, and enough of the cardboard and the spray paint. You can actually brand the whole city, which is exactly our first tactic was was branding the city. And so here is this uh, very <clears throat> appealing symbol and the world resistance appearing from nowhere along walls and people start talking about it. Well, the, the regime where we were lucky, a regime was stupid. They arrested people for doing this. And then it became a new story. And then the newspaper that published this story on the cover page was was sent to court by the regime. And then the members of, of the movement and the students and the NGOs all flocked into the courtroom to support the editor-in-chief, who was in court because of publishing the story of the students arrested while spraying the fist. So before we had probably 30 to 50 members, uh, we were nationally recognized. And regime gave us this favor. This is exactly what I mentioned when I say, sometimes your opponent's oppression will work for you. Probably it will, took us months to become the recognized name across the society by being a group of 30 people, uh, by being arrested, by being put on a cover page of the newspaper, uh, by having newspaper being prosecuted because publishing this story, uh, the whole opposition public in Serbia was talking about us within weeks. And that, of course, was the opportunity for recruitment. And that's where we grew from 20, 30 people to maybe a few hundreds. This is where we were able to develop the several local branches. And when you have several local branches, you can act independently. Then you can do a lot of work in, in being visible and sending messages and protesting and tactics and leaflets and fundraising and public statements and all this kind of stuff. So getting in few hundreds, it's actually the crucial moment of the movement. And because you have a very young kid, you can, you can compare it to learning how to walk or learning how to talk. And these are the huge milestones in child's development where getting to a few hundreds is a huge milestone in movement development. So there, there have been countless examples of protests uh, around the world and even yours, even, if, even though it was so well thought out and people in Serbia were so passionate, it could have fizzled out. Can you talk to us about that moment where, you know, you had this grassroots movement inspired by creative tactics and starting with a handful of people that their friends and their families and then their friends and then their families grew out that way and remained peaceful the entire time. 
when was the when did the balance of power start to shift? Like when did you actually realize, wow, we may actually be able to to to, to topple this regime? Because so many movements just they kind of get to where you were probably maybe a few years before uh, the end, and then they kind of fizzle out, or that's all of it. That's as far as they can go. What, what, when for you was the realization moment where you were like, wow, we can actually do this? And what helped you all push over the edge? Uh, I would rather, I, I, I don't think it was a moment. I think it was a process. Mm-hmm. And I think when the successful movements need to follow the two very important guidelines, uh, the first guideline is you need to think big. You need to think behind the change of the autocratic regime. You need to think uh, behind the, the just, just, uh, replacing one person you want to change the system obviously the system is bad whoever sits on the top of autocracy is kim jong this or kim jong that or some other kim uh, you need to to change the whole system so you need the power to envision the new system and you also need this as a written document so this is your light at the end of the tunnel that you're treating but you need to start small so the the trick of successful movements is having a large vision of tomorrow and looking into small victories because it is the small victories that encourage people and prevent movement from fizzling and prevent the burnout because you can put the finger and say, okay, we are still very far away from this from this big goal, but this is what we achieve. This is what we achieve. This is what we achieve. So in human nature, you need, you need a reassurance. And that also reflects the planning. If you can prove that you have a plan and you're looking at institutions and you're making gradual progress, the like-minded people will flock to you. Uh, Autocrats don't don't, uh, thrive on on huge public support. Rarely they have huge public support. They're using whatever public support or abusing whatever public support they have to exercise the absolute power. So it's not about how many people support the regime. It is how you organize and mobilize the rest of the society that doesn't support the regime and feels threatened, atomized, afraid, apathetic, alone. This is your primary target is to understand how to mobilize the discontent in this type of situation. So what, what, what was victory? Was there a day, victory day? I mean, I know you're, you're very much into looking at this as process, but there, there certainly was a day when he was, when Milosevic was no longer in power. So what was that, what, what was that day like for you or that week like for you? Uh, looking at, uh, at uh, October the 5th, that was, that was the day where, where, where the Serbian nonviolent revolution uh, uh, happened. Uh, uh, you need to understand the context. Uh, uh, the whole plan was uh, to win the election. Uh, we had a certain knowledge, movements learned from their own, their own experience and mistakes. And we had the situation in 96, 97, where we protested for 100 days. And what we noticed is that the election fraud was a trigger to bring the people in the streets that are never in the streets, because the people tend to mobilize when things become personal. So you take a look at Sudan, for example, it was the price of bread or the price of fuel in Iran. So not necessarily the political issue like water fraud, but when you look at the Serbia and Ukraine and Georgia and so many different places, it was the election. This is this is so, a very important so you, point. People aren't necessarily like you know dreaming of a Jeffersonian republic or something like that. They, they, they're pissed off about stuff being expensive or something in society close to them being broken. We can think about Wazizi uh, sparking uh, the protest in Tunisia because he wasn't being allowed to sell his wares. So... You're saying in, in Serbia, it was actually frustration with the electoral process? Uh, 
Uh, in Serbia, the trigger was the election fraud, and that yeah. outlines the big wisdom of, of nonviolent strat- strategies. Uh, you need to take a look at what will make things personal, because the things become massive and the, you can reach the millions of people the moment when the topic becomes personal. And in the economic, uh, if this is the economic driver, you may want to look at the economic driver. If this is the election fraud, then you count that the government will steal elections. We knew Milosevic will lose elections. And because he lost and stole elections in 96, 97, uh, we knew what will happen the day he says, oh, no, 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 I haven't lost. So the whole strategy was based around, A, uh, getting a huge turnout. That was the, the largest turnout in the in the history of the multi-party system in Serbia was on the election 2000 because we wanted to overwhelm his uh, election fraud machinery. Then, because the machinery was overwhelmed, mm-hmm. there was no other mean for him to do it than to try to, to fraud the votes within the Electoral Commission. But that was too visible and the people already knew that he lost and he lost the credibility uh, within the larger points of society. He, The people in his party was telling him he needs to step down. So he was already on the defense. Uh, the moment we learned that we won in the first round, uh, it was just a question of how long it will take for him to step down. And that was uh, September 23rd, 2000. And the change came October 5th, 2000. So our main concern was how to do it in order to prevent the clutch. Because uh, we knew he's like the animal with a with a with a with a back next to the wall, and mm-hmm. this is where, where where the animals are the most dangerous. And he really invited military to intervene, but there was nobody to pick up the phone. So you know his intention was right. to continue the struggle, but because the movement strategically pulled the pillars or the institutions, except maybe the ruling party, the national TV, and the parts of police, that's what he was left with. But that was absolutely not enough for him to continue the so rule after t- losing t- the election. Let's, let's actually talk about that for a little bit. Um, he picked up the phone to try and call his friends to save him. But through the years, you and your friends had talked to those institutions, organizations, and people and sort of gotten them on your side, right? So he wasn't able to basically militarize the whole country and keep it going as a totalitarian state. Um, why not? What did you do that was so successful? Uh, we understood the order of battle and we were focusing on, on uh, pillar after pillar after pillar. We we started by focusing on educational pillar, uh, making universities no-go zone for the police, uh, mobilizing students and professors. We were looking at what's left of the free media. Uh, we united it with the parts of the students. We were talking to the opposition party, uh, parties making the large coalition. This is all the parts of the theory of the spectrum of allies, where you mobilize one ally after another till you get to the majority of the society. Uh, we were also looking at the repressive machinery, which consisted of secret police, uh, police and the military. And we tried to chip out the little pieces of this machinery by fraternizing with the police on the site, by persuading the police that we are the friends, not the enemies by training people to hug the police instead of throwing stones to the police. So the street police really liked us. Uh, it was the parts of the special police which needed to be used when they want to beat us because the local police didn't want to beat us. So this is the type of the pool up pool approach that we had instead of push approach, which is very different. And this is where you yell at police and you throw stones at the police and you make police your enemies and you actually stabilize the system by attacking the repressive pillar. Uh, same with the military. Serbian military in 2000 was conscription 
military made out of people who were drafted in their 18th and 19th and, and early 20s. And when the votes were counted in the barracks in 2000, because the barracks vote independently from the rest of the country, Milosevic lost three to one. So it, even if the generals were giving orders for the military to jump on tanks, it is a very big question where these tanks would be going. I mean, it's a, and, question, uh, it's a question of legitimacy in many ways. I mean, a lot of people would look at your struggle and say that's impossible. He had total control over all the violence and all the weapons and all the military. And yet a ragtag group of students grew a movement that was able to topple him. A lot of people would say, you know, why didn't you take up arms? Why didn't you start shooting? Why didn't you start planting bombs? I mean, why didn't you start using guerrilla tactics? What would you say to those people? Uh, this is a larger, larger debate about, about uh, nonviolent movements and why nonviolence is twice more effective than the violence. And there are several studies which are kind of proving uh, this kind of approach. Uh, the, the blunt uh, common sense answer is, you know, it's like, uh, this is like uh, you being faced uh, with the Mike Tyson. And uh, if you choose violence, this is choosing the boxing ring with Mike Tyson. So you're actually uh, trying to challenge your opponent at his battlefield where he controls military, where he controls the, the, the security forces. And I'm intentionally not saying she because all of the dictators in, in the recent history are male. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so the, the, the thing is like, uh, you don't go boxing with Mike Tyson. The guy will eat your ears and then eventually eat you. Uh, you try to play chess with Mike Tyson. You try to play Scrabble right. uh, with Mike Tyson. You, you you try another path. So picking the path where you as a movement have numbers and commitment and energy and organization and legitimacy is where you want to go. But and that's very much older than the Serbian movement. It comes from the Sun Tzu. It's a brilliant insight. Um, you know, how much of that was just intuition for you and your colleagues and how much of it was learned? I mean, how much did you learn while you were doing this? through the late 90s uh, from other luminaries around the world? I mean, how much did you guys study, whether it was Gene Sharp or Gandhi or MLK? I mean, how much of that was an inspiration for you? Uh, Gandhi was certainly the big inspiration coming from a country which was uh, spearheading the non-aligned movements together with India. Gandhi was a necessary part of, uh, of our, our uh, school curriculum. So the young Yugoslavs would learn about the anti-colonial struggle. We had a lot of poor, uneducated, unarmed people facing the largest colonial superpower in the world, UK. And the idea of mobilizing numbers and looking at the military pillar and destroying both the reputation and material base of your opponent without opposing your opponent on the by, by guns and by bombs was something that we were learning about in schools. So other part was, was, was our self-experience uh, and we evolved a lot. We evolved from the group of the people that would use howling when we see the police, because, uh, you know, the message was you are the dogs of the regime, the guardian dogs of the regime, and thus creating even larger social distance. And then they beat you with the appetite all the way to understanding that these guys are, are, are would rather chase criminals than, than beating students on the street. And uh, understanding this and talking to them and trying to perform towards them and trying to share their frustration with the fact that they are the most behatred job in Serbia at the time was being a policeman because you were affiliated with a very unpopular regime. And normally, police force should be respected. They should be uh, fighting for preserving law and order, safety of you, safety of your kids. They should be chasing drug dealers and they should be getting applauses. 
So by offering this as a part of the vision and by developing a, a strong communication with police force was a very important part of us, our pool strategy. So what extent would you say... So we made mistakes first and then evolved to this later. To what extent would you say that your movement was decentralized and leaderless? Um, and, you know, what? react to that. Like, were, were there leaders or was it very centralized or do you feel like it was very decentralized? Uh, it was It was very decentralized and, and it had very strong leadership. So, so we don't want to mix uh, apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. Leaderless and decentralized are two different things. Correct. A centralization versus decentralization is a choice of movement. So you can decide to be centralized and have a clear hierarchy of some kind of representative body, or you can mimic the pyramidal structure of political parties. We intentionally didn't want to go that way. Uh, first of all, opposition uh, party structures uh, were not uh, recognized uh, by the people of Serbia at the time, like very successful. Uh, second, Serbia was... Uh, was the country where regime was uh, very had a huge appetite to go after leaders, and this more or less with every autocracy in the world. So if you stand up in the crowd and you make it all about yourself, you may be ending in jail, you may be ending dead, you may be ending co-opted, you may be ending uh, politically satanized. So we decided we have a manifesto and the vision and the symbol, and we are building the movement of equals. And that uh, that that movement culture was not only tied to the decentralization and the large autonomy by the local branches, which was very useful and boosted creativity and internal competition. It was also very difficult for regime to figure out how to deal with us because there was no figureheads that regime can shoot, arrest, satanize, and through them we can the movement. There was no Ansun Sushi which could be thrown in a house arrest to paralyze the movement. There was no there was no Aquino who could be shut down with the ambition to shut down the movement, like in Philippines. And uh, uh, the way we were dealing with it was understanding that uh, we need a lot of figureheads. And we actually trained the people uh, to be leaders. We trained the people for public speaking. And we were right. rotating figureheads on a weekly and daily basis because we knew the regime will come after those who appear. So, so the media. individuals... So it was, uh, it, these, it was indi a these individuals may have been familiar with... Uh, you know, like nonviolent theory, like you may have taught them along the way, but but not every single person out in the streets was right. So you're you're basically aiming for a model where you have many, many, many leaders who then have an order of magnitude more followers, um, and you were able to shape this movement into something that was very successful and topple one of the arguably worst, uh, you know, most cruel dictators uh, in, in modern history. By the summer of 2000, Serja and his colleagues were focused on getting out the vote for the upcoming September 24th election. When the results came in, it was clear Milosevic had rigged the vote and the population reached a breaking point. On September 29th, large-scale protests began to rock the country, reaching their peak on October 5th. Hundreds of thousands of people gathered in Belgrade, chanting, he's finished, he's finished. This time, Milosevic wasn't able to get the police and military to crack down the people power was too strong. On October 7th, he admitted defeat and resigned from office. Odpor had won, overcoming tanks and bullets and dictatorship with nonviolent strategy. And then what? Um, tell us about what happened after. I mean, a lot of times you read a, a, a harrowing story or journey and or you'll read testimonies of people who go to war and come back. 
and they feel like they're missing the journey. You know, this is a similar, you'll read, you know, fantasy stories like, of course, Lord of the Rings and others. You, you'll, you'll hear about this. And uh, so the whole point of the narrative is that um, once the journey's over, people feel lost inside and hollow. Is that something that you all had to deal with? Or was it just immediately very exciting that you had a new opportunity to create the country in a different way? Uh, it depends on the on the on the individuals and uh, the numbers inevitably fall uh, in movements after the large change is is perceived and it's probably the most dangerous moment for social change because uh, if you analyze the movements throughout the history you will figure out that bizarrely it's easier to get rid of the bad guy than to establish a permanent democracy after the bad guy is removed Actually, the same uh, Chenoweth-Stefan statistics show you that uh, you have 53% of chances to achieve the big change, but you have only 42% of chances to stabilize this change once the, st the, once the change happens. So actually, you have around 60% of chances to fail after the victory. And this is a failure of many movements across the globe. If we take a look at the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, it happened there. And then the, you know, the movement split. So where you're losing unity, where you're losing numbers, where you're losing focus, uh, there is no this big bear in front of the cave that is kind of unifying force because the dictator stepped down and then everybody has his or her own ideas on how to deal with the situation. And this is a very dangerous thing on the movement. This really need to have a hand on the ball, eye on the vision. Uh, this is why you need to have a transition plan far before you have the nonviolent social change. This is why focusing on changing institution in a long strategic way is very important, not only changing the person on the top. And transition is actually something we are focused very much on. And how you build this experience coming from a successful transitions, what things need to be changed uh, in real transition from closed society to more open society. And the, the, the truth is, this is not easy because it's far more sexy to outrun police in the street, mm -hmm. then, you know, to campaign, to have an ombudsman, whatever it is right. for the many people don't know what the ombudsmans are. So it's, it's, it's really a question. How do you transfer your numbers and energy? into it, it, It's things. often said that the easy part is, is toppling the dictator and the hard part comes after. I mean, it's a little trite, but you're basically saying there's some truth to that. There is a lot of truth to that. And uh, this is why we need to, to really focus our, our, our strength and energy in helping ongoing transitions. I mean, if you, if you would ask me where, where you think our expertise is mostly needed now, it's Sudan. Because now it's in a very fragile state. Now it's a how democracy. Now it's right. in a transition. Now we need to build institutions. And people say, no, but people suffer in Nicaragua. Sudan will be doing fine. The, the thing is like, no, they're actually in a more slippery position than those who are mobilizing. Yeah, just, just for the world. listeners, uh, Sudan was a uh, ruled by the Bashir regime for decades. And uh, just the last spring, uh, Bashir was forced out by uh, very dedicated mass uh, people power protests where there were many sacrifices along the way. And now the government is in a transitionary phase. And Sergio is basically saying that... Uh, we need now is the time to help the Sudanese. Uh, once you topple the regime, you don't. You, you, democracy is not guaranteed. I mean, obviously, we just need to look at Tahir Square uh, for, for an example um, of that. But you, you personally, though, in those days after he 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 stepped down, I mean, were you more filled with excitement, or were you were, were you nostalgic for 
I mean, did you ever get nostalgic about the days when you were still building the movement and trying to topple the regime just in your mind? Uh, yes and no. I was busy. I was. I, I decided to go inside the beast and try <laughs> to change the beast called the uh, political system from the inside. Uh, I stood uh, for parliament and, and spent the first three years of transition as a member of the parliament as well as a special advisor to the Serbian prime minister, who was a kind of the Kennedy uh, of the or Havel of the of the Serbian uh, uh, democratic change, Zoran Jinjic. He was un unfortunately assassinated in 2003. Uh, uh, I was the lucky one because I continued my struggle from the inside. But there were many people who were nostalgic. There were many people who uh, couldn't find their 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 energy and focus to go back to their studies after such a strong experiences. And and this is this is also normal. For the first few years when you were in office, I mean, I assume many of your colleagues were in office as well, assumed positions of power. Tell us about that transition from being the protester to being, you know, in the inside the beast and the one that people are protesting against. I mean, how did you handle that as, you know, for you personally? For me personally, it was, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm used to switch jobs in my life and then I don't have problem with, with changing roles and shifting focus uh, as long as I think uh, the, there is a value in, in, in what I'm fighting for. And uh, building democratic institutions and helping the new government and helping opening the society and ending up the isolation and more narrowly specific, uh, building the elements of Serbian environmental policies because my this is my education, I, I ended up being uh, I have an MA in animal ecology, mm -hmm. so I was I was kind of this this was building from the scratch, and uh, I just took this as my new life mission, and so it was not too painful for me. It was it was really frustrating uh, when you when you the real problem for me was not the new position or the office or shifting sides from outside of the government to inside of the government was the environment was was frustrating because the, what people figure out when they come to the transitions is that you inherit the whole state apparatus, uh, which is the, 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 the consists of the people that hate change. And uh, instead of working with the people who are thirsty for change, you are now getting to your job every day surrounded with the people who want to prevent change. And this is this was the frustrating part. Uh, it was not the nostalgia; it was just uh, just the frustration. And of course, uh, I ended up my my political career in two thousand four, in part because Milosevic, my first big challenge was in Hague. Jinjic, my my second reason for being in policy, uh, was was assassinated. The first Serbian prime minister got the same destiny as Kennedy. So both of my drivers were out. And this is where I, I, I decided to form Canvas together with another Otpor uh, veteran, Slobodzinovic, because I wanted to work with the people who really desire change. So while being frustrating, uh, working with people who don't like change, this is where I really figure out what I want to do in my life. And this is where we, we found the organization, which for 15 years works with people with, like you and people uh, who are attending the assemblies like Oslo Freedom Forum. And this is probably the best choice I made in my life. Yeah, so just give us a brief vision. Uh, you left politics and you founded, co-founded Canvas. Uh, what is Canvas and you know, what, have some, what have some of your achievements and, and victories been and why does it continue to inspire you today? 
Canvas is a center for applied nonviolent action and strategies. It's a small Belgrade-based uh, nonprofit uh, oriented on education. Uh, we spent years developing first curriculum for activists and then manuals and books. Some of them could be downloaded for free from our website. Some of them are very popular in places like Iran. Uh, with the people, not with the regime, of course. And, uh, and then we develop, uh, training manuals. So basically our idea is to train people how to build nonviolent movements for human rights and democracy and how to equip these people with useful tools and how to mentor these people through this process. And then later we also develop the academic branch because there is a growing appetite of understanding how the science of the social change works. Through the nonviolent movements, it's uh, it's based in Belgrade. It is five six people. Uh, it has uh, twelve trainers traveling across the globe. Uh, we were we were blessed to be approached by some of the most talented and some of the very successful groups coming from places like Georgia and Ukraine and Maldives in the past. So we worked with winners. We also worked with losers, uh, people from places like Belarus or Zim or Egypt. But in any case, we work with people who are putting their life on the risk for a positive change. So this is the achievement of Canvas is, is if we empowered one single person in the world to do their work better, then, then, then I'm very happy when I go to sleep. Um, your theories and practice at Canvas is, is inspired by uh, data, is inspired by statistics. So we have a, a chart that's from uh, Erica Chenoweth's uh, book about the topic that I just wanted to get your input on. And it, it basically shows that um, uh, nonviolent movements are much more likely to result in uh, success than violent ones. And they look at data going back almost 100 years. Why, why is this the case? Like, what, why, why does this data seem so, you know, maybe counterintuitive to people who might think that the only way to topple a government is kind of American revolution style. What, why in this century, and in, it seems increasingly so, why are nonviolent movements more successful than violent ones? Uh, the key is in participation. The way the nonviolent movements make social change is through numbers, and you're more likely to recruit numbers if you stick to nonviolence. First, it's uh, less risky. Second, it comes more naturally to the people. And also the recruitment base is, is wider. If you figure out... Uh, which type of people you need to recruit in order to have a guerrilla movement. You're looking at a very narrow part of the society ready to kill and die and camp in the woods and mostly male and people with some military training. Or if you look at the pots and pans being hit from the windows, which is a very popular tactic of many nonviolent right. movements worldwide, you look at anybody. Uh, the second part is also diversity. The more movement is diverse uh, by, by terms of gender and education and, and, uh, and geography and uh, uh, privileges, the more it's likely to succeed. So nonviolent movements tend to produce more participation, violence decreased participation. Nonviolent movements uh, tend to mobilize and recruit more diverse uh, types of individuals across the society. So these two in the combination are the reason why nonviolent movements are more likely to succeed than the violent movements. I have a, a fear or a feeling uh, that you're going to get a lot of new clients um, in the next uh, months and years as, you know, sort of bring it back to, to today, uh, as governments employ emergency tactics and emergency measures in the name of uh, fighting this particular virus. Um, I don't know if you've seen that there have been 
countries across the world, uh, even in sub-Saharan Africa, that, that don't even have many cases reported that have basically, you know, assumed dictatorial power. Um, you're, you've seen governments in countries like Hungary literally start to rule by decree, which is the dictionary definition of a dictatorship. You've seen governments uh, restrict movement and start to install sophisticated surveillance technologies in the name of fighting the virus in democracies like South Korea and Israel and the United Kingdom. And, you know, even in the United States, you're seeing both at a federal and a local level uh, conflict between people who say the government needs to do X to save us. And on the other hand, people who say, well, that violates our civil liberties. How do you feel like Canvas is, uh, you know, going to adapt to this this coming this coming time? Uh, well, you're true, Alex. Uh, the, the, actually, there is a study by Carnegie done a few years ago that uh, that two thirds of the countries in which uh, in which democracy shrinked are actually used to be established democracies. So the biggest threat from democracy is now coming from from people who come to power through the free and fair elections and then abuse this right. power. And of course, you count guys like Orban, or you can look at the Erdogan, or all of this all of this other. Uh, characters. Uh, once again, especially in the times of coronavirus, this is also the opportunity. Milosevic uh, went through the state of emergency. Serbia was bombed by NATO in 1999. And then he used this for a curfew, uh, cutting down the opposition, uh, killing the, the, the owner of the largest Serbian, uh, actually the only big Serbian opposition newspaper, closing down radio and TV stations. Uh, the trouble was after. So the movement was capable to capitalize the discontents after. So once again, looking at the corona situation, if you are running a small human rights group in an autocratic country, if you focus on building the platform to inform, mobilize people around the coronavirus, if you build a network of volunteers to help people during the coronavirus crisis, then you will build a resilience to keep your government accountable for its response. And then this resilience and these numbers will serve you well once the crisis is over because the virus will go. And there will be a situation in which people will start asking questions. So why so many people died? Uh, why it penetrated the certain hospitals? Why there was a media blackout? Why the tests have been waited for for weeks? And in democratic country, people normally protest uh, around these things. Uh, in Serbia, the largest temporary hospital had a Two threatens uh, to, to hunger strikes because the tests were late, because the Serbs protest when they feel injustice. In some other places, it's not yet the case. But it's like when you're looking at the situation, you can take a look at it and say, oh, you know, the world become more authoritarian. But you can also build your numbers, your reputation and your, your platforms throughout this crisis by addressing this crisis and being on the front line and recruiting first time responders. And once again, we can go back to Bolivia and talk about the Amazon forest fires. So um, just as a comment with regard to the trend that we're in right now, uh, it seems that there's two threats, at least to democracies. Um, one is that people can get fired up about that, is, that are going to be, in your words, personal for them. And that may provide an opportunity for civil, civil society and for a future society that's more just. You have these civil liberties and political rights issues, meaning you have people getting angry about emergency measures. You have people getting angry about restriction of their movement. You have people getting angry about 
hopefully surveillance um, that we're seeing more and more around the world. And this almost normalization of surveillance where Google and Apple are coming out and saying, hey, we're going to install like Bluetooth tracking software on all of your phones. And quite a bit of Silicon Valley and the mainstream media are, are cheering them on. So so there's going to be a reaction to both the political and civil side of things, but also the economic side of things. We are now in our second crisis in, you know, since 2008, where the reaction of our elites has been to bail out the people who have essentially, you know, caused a lot of the crisis in, in our economies. So you're going to have widespread discontent from citizens, both economically and, and politically. And, and I'm just talking about, you know, in Europe and the States. Um, so what you're saying is that here's where opportunities are born, right? Here's where people can create movements that are personal, that, that, that can grow in, in different directions. And maybe they start as a movement to provide support for frontline health defenders uh, at a hospital. And then maybe once this blows over, that grows into something else. But I, I think what, um, what, uh, what we're, we're definitely seeing is opportunities for, uh, you know, the, the future civil society movements of tomorrow being born today. I mean, what's your, what's your comment on this? Uh, I think you were right, Alex. I think uh, uh, looking into the situation, uh, building social resilience, spearheading the efforts to to really educate the people, uh, looking at the different aspects of this crisis. This is a health crisis. This is economic crisis. We talk a lot about this. It's also a mental crisis. The people are afraid. The people's life are disturbed. The people will lose jobs. The people are locked in homes. The people are locked with their kids. Everybody freaks out. If you are the group that offers people something useful to do now, then you would be able to capitalize on this layer because the friend in need is a friend indeed, and that works for any given situation. So focusing on this, uh, building your platform, mobilizing people around, uh, around the coronavirus, informing people, giving people creative ways to go through this. These are so-called non-political issues, but they build horizontal tides. They build the resilience. And then when the when the crap is coming from your government and when somebody, you know, uh, makes a mistake, then this accountability becomes a very political trigger. So there are so many groups across the globe that are doing this well. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at three in particular. We are having groups uh, in Malaysia that are organizing the help for homeless people. They fundraised uh, uh, thousands of dollars already in a very poor country because the Homeless people obviously cannot stay home because they don't have homes. Uh, we are we're looking at the groups in Nicaragua that are educating people and delivering the face masks in the country where president haven't been seen. And they are kind of undermining the coronavirus. We're having groups in Bolivia. So all of these people are doing the great job because they are understanding that this crisis is opportunity and they are building from this opportunity. And don't be surprised when you see the groups booming after the crisis, because they invested so much in in uh, in uh, in building numbers throughout the crisis. So the lesson here is that today is an opportunity, even in the darkness. There, there's an opportunity. Um, I wanted to conclude this uh, wonderful conversation by bringing on a special guest, who is someone that we both know very well, who is someone that is living proof that your practice of protest is not useless, um, is not um, ineffective. Uh, is not a waste of time, but rather is something that actually changes the world. So I wanted to bring on my colleague at the Human Rights Foundation, uh, 
Janice uh, Vakadaza. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about what's happening in Bolivia, but but mainly just just to give you a couple minutes to, you know, share with the audience, you know, how someone like her could be inspired by by someone like you. In October 2019, Janice Vacadaza had her own Otpor moment in Bolivia, where strongman Evo Morales had changed the constitution to try and rule forever and was attempting to win a fourth straight election. Much like Milosevic once did in Serbia, Morales went too far and tried to rig the results. The people rejected him and came out in the streets by the millions, forcing him out of office. Janice played a key role in helping to organize these peaceful protests, inspired by what Serja had done in Serbia 20 years earlier. Welcome, Janice. Hi. Hi, hi, hi. So good to see your face. It's very nice to hear both of you. So, Janice, I mean, when did you first learn about Serja and his work? And just tell us briefly how that transformed into your ability to create a movement in 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 Bolivia that has um, that has forced out a strongman. Thank you so much, Alex, for bringing me in. Um, as you mentioned, I'm one of many people who are passionate about nonviolence, and as many of us, I have been following and researching Serja's work and learning from him eventually since I was very little. I think I was about 12 or 13 when I first heard of him. I saw the documentary about what Atpur had done in Serbia and I started researching about it because I found it fascinating that a group of young people managed to change the entire destiny of their country and bring about democracy. And I read his books, I read his articles, and I got to meet him at the Oslo Freedom Forum in 2015 in Norway, which the Human Rights Foundation organized. And that was a beautiful surprise to me because I did not know that Serja, my favorite author of all times, was going to be there. So when I got to meet him, it was a dream come true. And ever since I've been lucky enough to learn from him, to learn about the wonderful work that he has done and that many other activists have done with nonviolence across the globe, and I think I can say with full confidence that nonviolence does effectively work, that what Serja teaches, and I mean, his mind is brilliant, he knows probably more than anyone else on this earth about nonviolence, is truly life-changing. And in my case, after learning from him and from many other people, I got to see nonviolence in action in my own country. We managed to do a lot of work regarding environmental issues, indigenous rights, and today, just today before this interview, we were actually delivering donations for people that need food because there's a lockdown in Bolivia. So we wouldn't be able to do any of these activities had we not learned how to create a movement and how to do it effectively and how to do so focusing on love and unity and nonviolence, which is something that I was lucky enough to learn from Serja Popovich himself. Serja, what do you make of what Janice has done in Bolivia? Uh, Janice is uh, living proof that uh, talent, uh, commitment, bravery uh, overcomes any kind of the situation. Uh, from the very beginning, I was admiring uh, her her understanding and uh, persistence in building the uh, what is now very successful and large movement called Standing Rivers. Using the two opportunities was also a key. The first one, stepping out when the Amazon forests were burning and being on the front line together with firefighters, uh, using this as keeping the government accountable for, for its doing and building the larger platform on the basis that this is the organization that does Commonwealth. And this is where, where I strongly 
supported every every step step of her, not only because because I like her so much, but because I care for Amazon as well. Uh, once again, with COVID situation, I think they're doing a great job. They're exactly the living proof of what should be done in this situation and how you use your network and brand and creativity to help people who are really in need and therefore build your reputation and build your numbers. So keep up the good work. You are, you are, the, you are, you are the living proof of all of my hopes. Maybe the blueprint for the future uh, is this decentralized citizen response where citizens are empowered um, and that, you know, maybe especially in times of crisis that, you know, the central governments kind of take a back seat to the citizens. This would be a pretty beautiful uh, vision. Um, but I'd love for the, both of you to kind of conclude with a reaction to, the, to this idea. To that point, I think something that I love about nonviolence, and that's why I never get tired of it, is that it teaches people that it's really within their power to change whatever situation they're in. Uh, Thanks to the movement that we created in Bolivia with my friend Standing Rivers, we managed to do so much for firefighters and for the Amazon itself and the entire part of Bolivia that was burning last year. And it's that very same crew of people that are working today in order to bring food and bring donations and equipment for uh, doctors in Bolivia during the COVID crisis. So if you stick to this, three things that Sergio teaches very well, uh, unity, planning, and nonviolent discipline, you can really achieve a lot. And the beauty of it is that you don't have to be a monk or a, a incredibly amazing Buddhist to do any of this work. Any person can use nonviolence. And that has, when you learn that you have that power and you share that with other people around you, you can really do amazing things, even things that you've never even dreamed of. So. And Sergeant? I can't agree more. Uh, this is the time to understand that building uh, civic resilience in the time of crisis is a, is a breeding basket of launching civil resistance once the crisis is over. And all of this communal work and solidarity work will pay off. Uh, but the thing is, you need to stay active. You don't have to despair. You don't have to think on how this impacts the movement or why nobody's talking about democracy. You need to use whatever talent and organization you have to really help your people, and that will pay off. So the lesson of today is that uh, today is an opportunity, despite the dark times. Um, build your movements. Uh, connect horizontally with your families, with your communities. And as final inspiration, there's a book you should read. So we have the cover to show you, um, Blueprint for Revolution, which is a book that uh, Sergio wrote a couple of years ago, which remains uh, as relevant as ever. You can buy it on Amazon. And it, as it says, it's how to use rice pudding, Lego men, and other nonviolent techniques to galvanize communities, overthrow dictators, or simply change the world. So Sergio, thank you so much for sharing your insights uh, today. It's been a real honor and pleasure to talk to you um, about your life and, and your achievements and your belief in protest. And it's been really nice to also hear that you're optimistic that even though uh, there are new regulations and new rules and new trends coming, that you see a lively and uh, inspired future for, for protest. Uh, thank you, Alex, uh, for this opportunity. Once again, message to you all. Every crisis is the opportunity. This is not something I invented. It's, it's told by Einstein. So should be the clever thing, use this opportunity, boost your numbers, uh, stay safe, uh, don't get infected, teach others how to stay safe, 
and always think that in times of crisis, you should be acting to build a civil resilience and horizontal bond. The societies who uh, express solidarity and this type of resilience are more likely to sustain when their democracies are challenged. Amazing. Farewell, my friend. It's you, Sin. Thanks for joining us today to talk about protest in the time of pandemic with Sergei Popovich. Uh, there were so many morsels of wisdom in there from him, uh, one of the great masters of, of nonviolent movements and of protest. And he has so many lessons that we can take today, uh, even as things seem dark and we're a little anxious about where things are going. His uh, persistent optimism and persistent ability to see opportunity is something that um, I think we all should rely on. And to go back to one of the things he was talking about, this idea of creating horizontal ties in our communities and in our nations is something that that I think we should think very carefully about um, moving forward. So thanks again for, for joining. Uh, HRF will be producing more content like this uh, in the coming days. So stay tuned at href.org and on Twitter at HRF. Thanks again.